Well, you might have heard the case out of the United States of the first vaping-related death, at least the first to be reported, and that happened just a few weeks ago. There was another story that has emerged out of the United States as well, and this is a young girl who vaped for three years, at least uh, three times a day or every time or every day for at least three years. She then developed a rare lung disease that left her in a coma. Luckily, she is recovering from that, but she still is on oxygen and is working to get her lungs back to full capacity. It's raised a lot of questions about vaping and what we know about the medical harm or the potential harm and what we don't know. This past week, while I was filling in for John McComb, I spoke with David Hammond, who is a researcher at the University of Waterloo, also an assistant professor in the Applied Public Health Department, and asked him about that death and if he was surprised. Well, it's a bit of a surprise for the reason that, you know, we don't know how harmful vaping is. Unfortunately, it's something that takes 10 or 20 years. That's also true for smoking. And that's because most of the health effects are likely to be from chronic exposure to your lungs. And to be clear, uh, it will be substantially less harmful than smoking, but it will almost surely be harmful. What we've seen over the last few weeks is different. These are sort of acute cases of respiratory disease among young people. And it's probably reflective less of the overall effects of vaping and more of something like a contaminant or faulty devices. Um, As I say, we would expect the general effects to play out over much more years rather than the sort of localized acute cases we've seen. So does that point to an issue with not knowing exactly what's in these devices? You're absolutely right. Uh, And like the, the bottom line is even today, we still don't know. There are reports that some of these uh, people that have been affected were vaping THC. Um, we don't know how much of it is THC, in other words, like marijuana or cannabis oil that people vape. We don't know if they were more conventional e-cigarettes that you would buy from a corner store uh, and that are legal here. So this is the problem. Uh, it is a reminder of a couple of things. Uh, you know, a lot of young people especially think that vaping is sort of it's perfectly safe, it's innocuous. You are inhaling chemicals into your lungs. Um, It also speaks to the importance of regulation. So there is an advantage in having these products be legally regulated so that consumers have some product standards. And if it's true that some of this is due to unregulated sort of THC vape oils, um, you know, that's scary. And we have a lot of Canadians that are using these products. And as you said, the problem is, is they don't know what's in them. So how did we get to this point where, like you said, it's still safer or perhaps Mm. somewhat health, not healthier, but safer than cigarettes. And I think people can agree on that. But how did we take the leap from that to uh, this is a completely safe thing to be doing? Well, you know, that's a great question. We are kind of simple creatures. Uh, We like to put things in two boxes, harmful or not harmful. Um, and, you know, the, the, it, it sounds like, it doesn't sound very scientific, but the best we can tell people is that these products will be much less harmful than smoking. That's actually not that hard. Smoking is the most lethal consumer product out there, kills one out of every two of long-term users. It will be less harmful than that, but it's still likely to be harmful. It is not like having a cup of coffee or something else. So, you know, it that doesn't sound like a complicated message, but consumers and the general public and even the media have had a hard time getting that through their head that it can still be bad, even if it's much less bad than smoking.
Uh, you talked about the chronic use too. So it sounds like there's two different things going on there as well in that in the one case, perhaps the respiratory illnesses we're seeing in the States, if they are linked to contaminants, they, they're linked to something specific to the device. That's much different than yep. a teenager who's starting it right now and 20 years down the road develops some kind of respiratory illness. You are absolutely right. Uh, and the fact that these are, you know, people have been vaping in North America, at least for about 10 years. The fact that we haven't seen this kind of rash of outbreak until now, the fact that it is fairly localized in certain U.S. states, and this is not me undermining the importance of this. This is serious, and we need to understand what's going on. But all those things together, as you say, suspect that something has gone wrong with the products that people are using. And there are things, for example, um, there, are, there can be contaminants in cannabis, things like pesticides or fungicides that uh, when they're in the product and if you smoke or vape them, they can release toxic chemicals. We don't know that that's what it is, but this is an example of the sort of thing that might be happening out there. But this doesn't mean that if a Canadian adult who's been smoking for 20 years has found that vaping helps them to stay off smoking cigarettes, this doesn't mean that they should go back to smoking. Right, because that's still the, the more evil of the choices. Absolutely. And I, you know, we're learning more and more about vaping and quitting. And, and we know that um, we talk about nicotine replacement ther- therapy through the patch or the gum. Well, this is kind of how it can work with e-cigarettes. And there are a lot of adult smokers who've tried other methods who find that e-cigarettes help them stay off smoking. That is a public health benefit. On the flip side, we've also had a big entry of young people in the market. We were doing fantastically well at reducing smoking and tobacco use. Um, And so the priority number one, in addition to getting rid of these contaminants and products, priority number one is to find a balance where we make these products available to adults who are trying to quit smoking, but we don't make them look like cool, shiny, modern ways of delivering nicotine that kids want to pick up. Uh, because that's where we've kind of shifted, isn't it? It was supposed to be a, a smoking cessation device or a way to get people from smoking. It wasn't supposed to be something that you started from scratch. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And look, if you, you know, I live in Ontario. I can walk down to my corner store, 7-Eleven or Max or whatever it's called, um, and I can buy products that have peanut butter and jam flavor, that have, um, you know, cotton candy flavor. And so, I think, and our federal government has sort of recognized that we sort of threw open the doors a little bit too wide. I don't think we need those flavors for an adult smoker who's trying not to die from smoking to use it. Um, I don't think that we need product displays next to the chocolate bars and the Slurpees in corner stores when a kid walks in there. So we can have these products be available, but it's all about shaping how people see them. And right now, some of these companies refer to their products as the iPhone of e-cigarettes. That tells us that we're projecting the wrong image to kids. So we do have some regulation, though, don't we? Or is it kind of mismatched across the country as far as if you need to be 19 or who can actually purchase these things? You're right. We have federal rules and provincial ones. And um, uh, out in BC, it's a little bit tighter than Ontario. So you can't have the same types of ads in stores in BC that you can in Ontario. Um, But there are issues with flavors. There are issues with just restricting the advertising. And actually, Health Canada has said that they intend to do this. Um, It'll take them a year or two to do it, probably. And in the meantime, the question is, is whether these companies will voluntarily do that or not. And so far, we're not seeing them voluntarily uh, claw back their advertising probably as much as they could. When you talked about, you made an interesting point saying that if there's some marijuana, there could be pesticides or there could be fungicides or something that gets some, some chemicals that get into this. I mean, people have been ingesting marijuana for yeah. decades. So wouldn't we have already seen 
some kind of impact if if we're talking about a product that's got those contaminants in it well before we saw people vaping with it? Yeah, we could have. Um, Sometimes it's hard to detect sort of low-lying things. You know, people wouldn't necessarily walk into their doctor and admit that they were using cannabis five, ten years ago in the way they would now. But we also, the cannabis market is different. So most people still often smoke their product. We hear a lot about edibles. But we have a new class of, of extracts, potent extracts. Um, some people call, you know, shatter wax. The one that's really going to take off is these ideas of oils that you can vape. Um, and so we kind of have a new industry here, um, and there is manufacturing behind it. It's a new class of products. Um, they will be legal in Canada at the end of this year. So most other products are legal now. These will come online. But people are already using them. So the bottom line is we have a new class of products where people are ingesting it in different ways. And it may or may not be related to some of those manufacturing practices in the black market. Uh, when you say, uh, so the oils that you can vape, you just do you add that to the vaping pen or how does that even work? Good question. So you can buy ones. They look like what most people would think of as regular e-cigarettes that have nicotine. Um, sometimes you can use the devices that people use for nicotine and just swap out a cartridge. Often they come in vape pens standalone. Um, and so on the one hand, we tell people, you know what? Vaping is better than smoking. With cannabis, you can vape dried herb. You, you actually grab the bud and you put it in a chamber and you vape it. But you can also do it through these oils. And these oils are much more potent. So 70, 80, 90% THC compared to 15 or 20 in the dried herb. And you have other solutions and chemicals in that solution. So um, that's the product category that's emerging. And that's the one that at least in a few cases has been implicated in some of these respiratory issues. Uh, so do you think, is it too late that people are already using this or do we, can we still bring in leg- uh, regulation? Yeah. Well, we have regulation coming in. So these are being used by Canadians on the black market. They will become legal uh, in December of this year. And I think that is good news. It means they'll be regulated uh, and they're subject to some product standards in the same way that other types of cannabis products are. So that is one argument that people make in favor of legalization is that at least consumers know what they're putting into their bodies. That was David Hammond. He is a researcher. He is also a professor at the uh, in the Applied Public Health Department at the University of Waterloo. Our, right now, though, we take a look at a story that is odd, to say the least. It is the first time an astronaut has been accused of a crime, and the crime committed in space. So how did things unfold, and what do we know about this? Let's bring in Kyla Lee, who is a criminal lawyer here in Vancouver and has written about this on her blog. Kyla, thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you for having me. Uh, what stood out for you other than the fact it is the, the first time we've had an accusation of a crime from space? What else kind of stood out uh, for you about about this story? I guess the, the thing that stood out for me about this story, the, the weirdest part is, is how you actually prosecute a crime that took place in space because there's so many levels you know if you're living and working on a space station you're in this weird international zone what law applies and and how do they prove the offense against you so all of these questions were really interesting to me and this is a, a case if people haven't heard it it was a, an astronaut in space it, the it, and it has to do with a custody battle that was taking place and the access of bank accounts that apparently the 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 astronaut in space was able to break into these bank accounts, which I found strange too. I didn't realize that you could do banking from space. 
that blew my mind too. The idea that you have a, an internet connection in space, but an internet connection that is so good that you could allegedly hack banking information from space just surprises me completely. I mean, I guess it makes sense when you think about your proximity to satellites, but um, but it's just not something that's ever crossed my mind. The technology available to astronauts that we also have on Earth. And you made an interesting point. So this is something, and the astronaut uh, was stationed uh, at the International Space Station. So where would that fall? Would you fall under the law of the country you're from, or how would that even be figured out? So the way that it works is under international treaties related to space travel, any astronaut who commits an offense at the space station that would be an offense in the country that they're from can be investigated and prosecuted and charged according to the laws of the country that they're from. And in Canada, we've actually implemented this treaty by amending the criminal code to include a specific provision involving the space station. So we have a provision in our criminal code relating to crimes committed in space. Interesting, even though that hasn't been an issue, as far as we know, it hasn't been an issue until now. This is the first instance in which somebody has uh, ever been charged with a crime in space. Um, And she has a very interesting defense uh, because her position is that she wasn't hacking the banking information for any nefarious purpose because she was in space and she couldn't just walk into the bank or phone the bank to make sure that money was in the account to pay for her child. She had to hack to make sure that there was the financial resources there to make sure that her child's needs were covered. Uh, which which is interesting, I found, too, because when we talk about hacking, you think about somebody that's got this very advanced uh, knowledge of systems and banking systems and are able to do that. And I wasn't sure to what extent. Uh, I mean, just your I, I wouldn't be able to hack into a system even if I was in a similar position where, it's, like you said, you're not doing it for nefarious reasons, but you have to get into your banking information. Well, I think this speaks to two things. First of all, the I think the the lengths that parents will go to make sure that their children are looked after, but also the uh, something that I think we don't consider often, the extreme genius that astronauts actually have. These people aren't just people who are willing to go and live in a zero-gravity environment. They're people who are very accomplished academically, extremely intelligent, and capable of things that most of us couldn't do even on a rest day. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting one for sure. So do you think other uh, places or other jurisdictions will be watching this to see how this unfolds and how this ends? Oh, absolutely. This is a case that's going to draw international attention, not just because there are potentials for constitutional challenges to laws uh, governing space, um, but also because depending on how the access to the banking information was done, it may have engaged other countries and she may potentially have committed crimes in other countries, depending which servers she used to get to the banking information, which then raises other questions of whether there are laws of other countries that can apply to astronauts from uh, the United States while they're in a space station. It's uh, Yeah, it is an interesting one. We'll certainly be watching it uh, and see what happens. I wanted to ask you as well, because this was, uh, you wrote about this on your blog, the Weird and Wacky Wednesdays blog, but there was another story on there as well that I think anybody would be very uh, concerned about if you do any kind of traveling. And people get nervous traveling, even when you know you've done nothing wrong. It's It can be nerve-wracking going through security and, and customs and declaring that you've got nothing. Uh, this was a man who was actually detained, what was it, for 82 days for for bringing honey into or for traveling with honey. 
yes, uh, border officials saw that he had honey, um, and they didn't believe that it was honey. They thought that it was meth, uh, so he was detained uh, and held pending the results of an analysis of it uh, to determine whether or not it was a, an illegal substance. Um, he was denied any bail, and ultimately the results came back that this was just plain old honey, probably shouldn't be crossing the border with honey, but still um, plain old honey um, and nothing uh, illegal in the drug sense about it. So very scary. I just saw another story yesterday about a person who was detained at the border for having uh, a large amount of white powder, which uh, investigators thought was drugs, but it turned out to be vegan baking ingredients. Oh, dear. And and I guess in in this case, too, the, the fact that this man was kept in detention for 82 days because the honey had to be sent to a specific lab to be tested. I mean, that's just, can you imagine, one, you're, you're all you think you're going home just to have tea with this honey that you've purchased and suddenly you're spending the next 82 days in prison? It's a- absolutely shocking. It's shocking that it took this long, that there was no presumptive test that could be done to confirm that this is not methamphetamine. It's shocking that it had to be sent to a special lab and it's shocking that he was detained pending the results of that. Why he couldn't be released on conditions, returned to where he came from and monitored by uh, by official sources boggles my mind. And I think that that wouldn't have happened if this incident had taken place in Canada. Uh, we're more, far more lenient than other countries when it comes to release pending results, release pending, uh, release pending um, trial or prosecution for crimes. Um, but 82 days is too long and unacceptable. Exactly. And you answered my question because I was concerned that this happened in the Baltimore airport. But I was curious if you thought it would happen here. But that's, uh, I suppose, good news that it would be yeah. unlikely on this side of the border. Yes, it would be. All right. Well, interesting uh, stories, a little wacky uh, when it comes to the legal stories. Uh, Thanks for writing about it. And thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. As we've been reporting on the news, Hurricane Dorian is now bearing down on the northern in the northern Bahamas. It is now categorized as a Category 5 storm. That means it is capable of doing a lot of damage. Let's check in with Jackson Prosco. He is the Global News Washington Bureau Chief, but he is now in Florida covering this. Jackson, good morning to you. Good morning. Where are you and what's happening? Yeah, I'm in Daytona Beach, actually, which is our second location since our arrival in Florida. We were originally in Cocoa Beach, uh, but that area is now under mandatory evacuation order and our hotel shut down. Uh, so we moved up here yesterday. Uh, what we're seeing is a pretty empty, iconic boardwalk. Most of the tourists that are, are here are checking out of their hotels today, and we're sort of on standby. We're not sure how much longer we'll be able to stay here. Uh, I saw your reports yesterday from Cocoa Beach, and the same thing. It was kind of eerie how quiet it was. You could see the wind in that, but how people had left and even and some of the storefronts and restaurants and that that had been boarded up. Yeah, and certainly the the kind of famous boardwalk here in Daytona is completely boarded up. That really finished yesterday, um, uh, and sort of uh, those final preparations took place. Uh, there's not much point staying open, though, anyway. Uh, you know, I was talking to the hotel staff here yesterday. They had been 100% booked for uh, the Labor Day weekend, and at the end of the day, they only have 10% occupancy because most people changed their plans. And so what do we know at this point? Because it changes as far as where the storm is going and where it's expected to hit. Uh, What's the latest information you have on that? 
Yeah, so it's going to stall over the Bahamas for uh, a very dangerous sort of 16 to 18 hours. And, uh, you know, can't imagine being stuck under Category 5 conditions uh, that are rapidly intensifying. Uh, they're still continuing to, to grow well beyond Category 5 status here. Uh, after that, the forecast suggests it's going to take a sharp turn north uh, and essentially skirt the coastline of uh, the Florida, uh, Georgia, and the Carolinas. But the question is, how far out to sea does it stay? Uh, some of the models in the past few days uh, and, and overnight suggested a closer path toward the Florida coast, which essentially puts uh, all of the east coast of Florida in play at this point. Uh, in other words, there's a danger that even if the storm doesn't make direct landfall, that we're going to see some significant impacts on shore here. And is that also because with the upgrading to Category 5? Because I think there was kind of that feeling when we heard it was going to stay off the coast to people maybe sighed a bit of relief thinking it wouldn't be as bad. But now that it's a stronger storm, like you said, even if it's not barreling down on land, there still is that potential for damage. Exactly. And that's why officials all along have said, look, don't don't pay too much attention to the, the day-to-day fluctuations in the forecast, pay attention to that sort of warning cone, which includes all of Florida, because uh, there is still a chance that we're several days out from it arriving here. Uh, we're talking Tuesday into Wednesday for most of Florida, uh, that the path could deviate substantially. So um, I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people just watching this very, very closely. And again, we're talking a difference of, you know, 20, 30 kilometers, making all the difference in terms of the impacts people see on land here. Uh, you mentioned, too, the, the mandatory evacuation at Cocoa Beach. Do you find, with, the, with it being still a couple of days away, are people paying attention to the evacuation orders and taking it uh, and, and, and acting now? Or is there a sense that people are waiting to see what happens or if perhaps it weakens? No, I think there's been a sense that people have been waiting to see what happens because that forecast has been so uncertain. But I can tell you uh, just out now in the past five minutes, there's a new mandatory evacuation order for parts of Palm Beach County and Martin County, which is further south in Florida. Uh, that comes into effect starting this afternoon. So uh, you get the sense that people are being moved out uh, out of harm's way pretty quickly. And uh, when you talk about a Category 5, I can't imagine a lot of people wanting to ride that out unless they're in a very well-built concrete structure. Yeah. Uh, where are people going? So there are hurricane shelters and evacuation shelters that are open and uh, available. Um, the other thing that, of course, exists are hotels further inland, and a lot of them start to book up in advance of this, and people sort of continue to make and adjust their plans uh, as they sort of watch the storm and anticipate where it might go and where they might be able to flee to. And I don't know if you've seen this or been out in the community, but yesterday we were looking at reports and people stocking up. Uh, there were a lot of reports of stores gouging when it came to gas prices and food prices. But is there a sense that are people uh, still stocking up and preparing for the storm? Yeah, almost 50% of the gas stations now have run dry uh, in this part of Florida. So uh, there is that run on supplies, and, and people have uh, been stocking up. I think the, the benefit, though, is that people have had days to prepare for this. Uh, it's unusual to get a week's warning of a hurricane coming. So people have taken that opportunity and loaded up on supplies as much as possible. Uh, it was sort of our first order of business when we arrived on Friday, and we're glad we did that. And it's nice to know that you've got the time to prepare, even if the path remains uncertain. Oh, definitely. So where you are in Daytona Beach, are you concerned? Concerned, or have they told you that there could be, depending on what happens with the storm, that, that could fall under an evacuation order as well? Yeah, it most likely will. We're actually on one of the islands on the outer banks here. And so even though we're in a well-built concrete structure that would have no trouble standing up to a, even a Category 5 storm, the issue is that there's a series of bridges that connect it to the mainland. So if you stay out here, 
you're stuck out here because not only do the bridges shut down as soon as the wind speeds pick up, uh, but they will remain closed even after the storm path passes, excuse me, until they can get structural engineers out there to verify that they're still okay. So you really don't want to stay out on the, on the outer banks. Uh, there are also, uh, sorry, very, very specific evacuation zones here in Florida. They're, they're by letter. And so each community has, uh, different letters. Uh, that they will evacuate uh, so they can do it in sort of a very staged and strategic manner. So these outer banks where I am would be a, a zone uh, A. Zone A will be the first to evacuate. Go across the bridge and you're on the mainland, but near the coast, that might be a C or D if it's not prone to flooding. And so you could quite likely stay there and ride out the storm if you wanted to. Wow, it's just like, and you mentioned this too, it's it's a bizarre, I, I guess, convenience that people have this much time to prepare. But it also just seems so strange that this storm, which has now gotten even stronger, uh, not knowing exactly when it's going to hit and just kind of being on edge, I guess. It is. Um, I think... Uh, you know, people are just putting a lot of faith in that forecast and hoping that the predictions of that northerly turn uh, hold true. And it just really is going to come down to when that turn happens. Uh, so people will be watching the forecast very nervously. And I think what you'll see tomorrow, uh, further south, uh, orders have come into effect today. Those are the areas that are going to start to see tropical storm force winds by tomorrow night. So, yeah, you want to get those people out of the way as early as possible. All right. We will leave it there. Jackson, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll uh, hear from you over the next few days. Uh, Stay safe and thank you again so much. Thank you. Well, Punky the dog has lived another day, but this is a case that could make its way all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. We've talked about this on the program before. Punky is an Australian cattle dog. Punky was deemed dangerous after he bit and seriously hurt someone in a park in Vancouver, and this happened back in 2017. So let's get up to date on this case and take a look at how things have unfolded. Victoria Schroff is an animal law lawyer, also a professor of animal law at the Allard School of Law at UBC, and joins us on the line now. Victoria, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for the invitation, Jill. Oh, so where are we at? And and explain how this reprieve kind of came about as far as what's happening with Punky the dog. Yeah, so um, the reprieve was actually very last minute. It was like some people have said, like a movie, very much an 11th hour thing. What happened is we made an application on the Monday I argued it on the Thursday, and by Friday, we had been granted uh, basically a stay of execution, literally, um, in that that 23rd of August was supposed to be the day that Punky was destroyed because he had been ordered destroyed by the courts. So we got a reprieve while we are going to be arguing to Canada's highest court to take the case. And so Punky bit somebody or was was deemed dangerous after this incident. And so how did things unfold from there in that rather than the owner being told that you have to use a muzzle or take steps, how did it go from that to uh, being ordered to be euthanized? So what happens is um, a she ended up being unrepresented at trial. So um, Susan Santex was alone at trial representing herself against a seasoned prosecutor and uh, so that trial was, was really quite difficult to overcome some of the facts and, and the way things went in in evidence because that's where the original um, part of the case happens is the first level, and that's the trial. She was unrepresented. And so um, essentially the judge ordered that Punky had to be destroyed. He was two years old at the time when he, he um, bit a woman in an off-leash park in Jericho. 
And how much damage did Punky do? Um, I the I can only look at what the the trial transcripts say, and they say that um, her leg was bitten, her hand was bitten. Um, but the whole point that I was making in the Court of Appeal when I argued is that we always should be sure to have a full factual and evidentiary matrix in place before a death order is carried out. And that includes expert evidence, and it includes knowing exactly what or what isn't the rehab prospects for this animal. And do you believe there are rehab prospects or that this case, Punky, could be spared and and it would be okay for Punky then to continue on? Well, I think I think definitely. I think that what happens is in the in the majority of cases that I've had, and I've been doing animal law for twenty years in Vancouver, and I also teach, as your introduction said, and we have not had a single dog who was originally deemed dangerous reoffend in the time that they were released um, because they're released on conditions such as um, wearing a muzzle or the owner guardian has to build a higher fence or to take training classes. There are all kinds of different things you can do short of killing an animal to make sure that the public remains safe and the dog owners are responsible. So, and that's what I think, what I was having trouble understanding with this case is I've seen other cases like that too. And I used to, to walk dogs at the, the animal shelter in Vancouver. Uh, there was a dog there, Bosco, that actually was there for more than a year while the owners fought because I think he'd actually killed a puppy. Uh, there have been, and, and in the end, he was released with those conditions. So why is this case different? Why are we now at the point where Bosco's getting, or sorry, not Bosco, where Punky is getting this 11th hour reprieve? It could go to the Supreme Court of Canada, why was this dog not released with similar conditions? Well, I think a lot of what happened was what happened at trial. And now, um, since it's been going through the appeal levels, when it, we, we tried to argue that the test, the onus for the test for how and when you decide if a dog is being destroyed needs to be clarified by the court. That was one of our main arguments. And um, so what's happened here is that um, we're saying we really would like the Supreme Court to take a look at it. It's the last level of court left to try to save Punky's life. So um, it's it's pretty it's pretty nerve wracking for um, Susan Santix, the owner. Um, but I do believe that ground cases, groundbreaking cases like this one show that we're ushering in a new era for animals in the law in Canada. So it's a really, really important case, uh, not just to BC, but I think to animals in Canada who are deemed dangerous. And, and Punky, so Punky would be what, four now? Correct. Yeah, he's I, been in there two years, just, just over two years now. And where's he been this whole time? He's been in the, um, basically the doggy jail, uh, the Vancouver City Pound. And and they're doing their best given the constraints. And I mean, realistically, animals aren't supposed to be in there that long. But it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. I I visited him in his kennel, and he's in a small concrete holding cell, um, completely bewildered as to what he's doing there. You know. Well, and isn't that a concern too? If we have a dog that clearly had an issue that was involved in biting a woman, you would think two years in that in those conditions certainly aren't going to help any kind of rehab or help this dog be socialized or help help rehabilitate this dog. Right, he gets to see uh, Susan, his person, for thirty minutes per week. 
through the cage. So it's not a lot of interaction with his family members. And um, this is something that I've been trying to explain in my interviews, and that is that this potential for rehab should start right in the jail cell, so to speak, so that um, they do this in, in lots of other shelters. For example, I was looking at a shelter in Battersea, England, that's been around for over 100 years, and they actually do training while an animal is in their shelter so that they're releasing a better canine citizen. I mean, it makes sense, just like we do in other correctional facilities, that we say, well, here are some things that we can do that when this dog, if this dog is released to the public, they're going to be released in, in good shape. Um, so I think that's, that's something that we need to look at in our system as well. Because there have been cases as well, unfortunately, when we've seen people injured or other animals injured by aggressive dogs where the owners have voluntarily agreed to have the dog destroyed. Uh, but in this case, do you believe and does Susan believe that Punky will not reoffend if released? Well, that's what she's hoping. You know, I mean, I think he's going to need training and so forth. And I think it's probably a good idea, for example, that he does wear a muzzle. She has said over and over again that she will comply with any order. And she wants to keep the public safe, too. She's she's a retired OR and ER nurse's aide. She's, she's not immune to this idea of public safety. Um, you know, but I think this is the key. And I actually stood up in the B.C. Court of Appeal, B.C.'s highest court, and I read from another Court of Appeal decision to show where, this is a 2018 decision, where it really telegraphs, though it's the dissent, where we are with animals in Canada. And I'll just read you a couple of lines from the dissent. Um, the, the dissenting justice said, quote, but dogs are more than just animate. People form strong emotional relationships with their dogs, and it cannot be seriously argued otherwise. Dogs are possessive of traits normally associated with people like personality, affection, loyalty, intelligence, the ability to communicate, end quote. I mean, I could go on, but, you know, the idea that that tells you what other um, courts of appeal, at least in dissent, are saying about what I say we're in, and that is a transformed legal environment where animals matter. Well, and doesn't this case also point go to, I can't even imagine the money that has been spent on this case, the time that's been spent on it, when it does seem, if we have an owner who's agreed to muzzle the dog and to follow what to other rules many municipalities have with aggressive dogs, it seems like it should, that should be enough. Well, thank you. I mean, it, were you the judge, Jill? <laughs> Apparently <you> not. <laughs> well, I it just appreciate yeah, that. And a- I mean, I think we're saying here also in this case that Punky is like an every dog. And by helping him, we're helping all dogs because this case is unprecedented, I believe, in Canada. Um, and we're seeing, we're seeing, as you, you've seen yourself working with dogs, that while animals are property in court, they're very much family members at home. How do we reconcile those two different ways of thinking and make them merge better so that we get in step with where we are in 2019, 2020? It's not 100 years ago. We're not an, an agrarian society. Dogs are our companions. They're not our, our working helpmeets. Well, we will uh, continue to watch and see uh, what happens. Uh, when do you think you might know if this case does go to uh, the Supreme Court? Well, fingers crossed. We actually have until the 
23rd of September to file our leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. And then we wait. Um, So apparently, my understanding is three judges at the Supreme Court reveal uh, whether they're going to say yes or no at the end of a couple months. And that's that's what we'll hear. We'll hear a, a yes or a no. And hopefully we do get to go to Ottawa and show that animals are not like other types of property. They're not they're not a sofa. They are animate and they are sentient beings worth fighting for. All right. So we will leave it there, but I know we will talk to you about this again. Uh, Victoria Shroff, thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, you might have heard this news. Ogden Point in Victoria, the site of the cruise ship terminal there, is going to get a new name later this month. It is going to be called the Breakwater District. And part of the reason for the renaming is to distance the name Ogden from that point. Some saying the history of the man, Peter Ogden, is one that isn't so great and perhaps there shouldn't be a landmark named after him. That's a common story. We've heard other stories with similar arguments being made for change changing the names of whether it's a landmark, a street, or what have you. So what actually goes in to changing the name of something like that? Well, we have reached Felix-Marie Bado, co-chair of Vancouver's Civic Asset Naming Committee. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank um, you so much for having me. Well, I think a lot of people think it's just a signing of a paper and you can change the name of something, but do you know firsthand that a lot more goes into it than that? A lot more goes into it. Um, Essentially, in order to change the name of an asset, a street or, or a statue or what have you, the community has to get together and 75% of the community in that area needs to agree that the name of that asset needs to be changed. Um, this isn't something that has existed for that long. Up until last year, this opportunity did not exist. But now Vancouverites have an, have an opportunity to have a stronger say in how streets are named and what changes might need to be made. So 75%, which is a pretty high threshold, but that makes sense because you're making a big decision. Is it different, though, in the case I just mentioned, Ogden Point in Victoria being being called the change to Breakwater District, I would imagine mm-hmm. it's not as complicated to change a point or a district than a street because when it's we're talking about a street, do we not then get involved with land title and addresses and 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 that's somebody that's somebody's home address if we're talking about exactly. a residential street. When it's a street, it definitely is a bit more complicated. Um, the biggest complications are always around making sure that people are able to have emergency services arrive. So anytime you change the name of the street, there's confusion. So that's a really big, a really big piece of it. There's expense, um, and there's also people who will be upset. But at the same time, it's really important that the message gets out there that we are a culturally diverse city and that, that Vancouverites have a say. And, and so is, are there ways of getting around it, though? I was thinking of uh, by the stadium where it's now kind of known as Pat Quinn Way, but it, didn't, it wasn't officially changed. It was kind of mm-hmm. added to, I think it was Abbott Street. Is that a way to kind mm-hmm. of find a compromise so you don't have to go through uh, the changing everybody's address? There are compromises. Um, there, there are compromises in each situation. It's, it's very different. In that case... Yeah, maybe that was a, a way to come up with that compromise. But that does not mean that if somebody is, if a group of people are unhappy with the name of their street and that they're passionate about it, it doesn't matter what, what the expense is. The, 
it's our reputation as a city on the line, and we're going to make sure that it that it happens. It won't happen overnight. These things take these things take time and consultation. But it will happen. And so if that is the case, and say somebody's unhappy, and I know Trutch Street has come up in the past. So say the Mm -hmm. people of Trutch Street have decided we don't want to live on Trutch. We want to have a new name. How does Mm -hmm. that, so how does that even, how does that process work? And then how do they pick a new name? They, if they want to have a name change, again, there needs to be 75% in favour. Um, they can put forward names themselves or they can come to the Civic Assets Naming Committee and ask us to pull a name from the, the reserve list. So either way, the way it works is that they, they make their decisions, they come to the Civic Assets Naming Committee and they say, hey, we've come up with the 75%. We're not happy with what's, how we're being looked at here in this community because of the name of this street. Um, this is what we want to change it to. Or, hey, do you have an idea of what would be culturally relevant and we sort of take it from there. Is that interesting? And and then I would imagine there's a process too. I, I mean, do you have to have consensus on the new name? Or like the same consensus 75 the new- like the same 75 is there a threshold of a, the, does there need to be agreement no. on what the new name is? <clears throat> no, not necessarily because at the end of the day the Civic Asset Naming Committee is going to be, and the and City Council will decide whether or not the name that was chosen is relevant for the area, making sure that it's culturally specific, if that's, if that's the case, or making sure that it's not offensive, making sure that it's named after flora and fauna of the, the area, making sure that there aren't any um, double names, so that name isn't used for a street elsewhere in Vancouver so that emergency services don't get confused. All of those pieces have to come into play. So it, it is more complicated than saying, I, I want my name, my street name to be Bado Street and everybody's agreed. <laughs> right. It's not going to necessarily work that way. Uh, and what do you say to the argument, and we hear this quite often, whenever there's a push to change, whether it's the name of a school or a point or a, a street, mm-hmm. that that's the history. And yes, it might not be acceptable in today's standards, but mm-hmm. at the time, that was our history, and it's a piece of the history that uh, people are trying to erase. Mm-hmm. Nobody is changing history. It's just not possible. Nobody's names are being erased from history. People like Sir William Tretch and James Dunsmuir, for example, they will still have their place in history and the history books, and we will learn from that history. We'll continue to learn from that history. We just don't need to have their names glorified by having streets and assets named after them. So it it is a good opportunity for the public to get involved and help us create spaces that reflect our diverse history and make spaces that are culturally safe for everybody. All right. Uh, it's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, topic for sure. Now, if somebody has an idea or they want to learn more about this, where can they learn more about the Civic Assets uh, Naming Committee or get, more, get that information? They can go to the City of Vancouver website and they can look up the C- Civic Asset Naming Committee and check out um, how c- city assets are named, and it will give people step-by-step instructions on how to put forward names for the Civic Asset Naming Committee. They can also reach out to us and say, hey, I'm, our community is super passionate about this name. Can we come and give you a presentation? And then we will work that in as well. All right. Uh, definitely uh, interesting uh, the way that we're seeing more and more of this happening. We will leave it mm-hmm. there. We are right out of time. But thank you so much for your time on this Sunday morning. Thank Appreciate you, it. Jill. <laughs> Take care. All- 
Well, would you like to see the nutritional value, the calorie count listed on your alcoholic beverages, or do you take more of an ignorance is bliss approach when imbibing? A researcher with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Researcher recently took a look at this and concluded a study that found we Canadians drink about 1.8 alcoholic beverages every day. But how many calories is that? What exactly are we ingesting? Well, Hard to say when there's no labeling on the package. Let's bring in that researcher. And Adam Shirk, Dr. Adam Shirk, is a postdoctoral fellow, again, with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use. And he joins me on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. Uh, thanks for being with us and talking about this. Uh, I think it's one that, that uh, people have a lot uh, of opinion on or, or knee-jerk reaction when we talk about putting labels on alcoholic beverages. So what do you think the benefit would be of doing that? That's a good question. What we think the benefit would be is it's difficult to understand how many calories and what different type of nutrition we're getting from alcoholic beverages because that nutrition facts label, that white label with black print that we're used to seeing on so much packaged food and beverages in Canada, just um, it's not mandated to be on alcoholic beverages. So we thought this was something that we should bring attention to. And would it be, because I would imagine there's not a ton of nutrition in any of the, the alcoholic beverages that we are ingesting. So would it be more the calorie count? Yes, that's an important thing to consider. So in that average number of drinks that we take in as drinkers per day, we get about 250 calories from, from alcoholic beverages every single day on average as a drinker in Canada. So this is a pretty significant proportion of all of our recommended calories. In fact, it's more than 10%, 11% of all our recommended calories we're getting from alcoholic beverages. Yet it's not on the label, so it's difficult to understand this. And up until, or, or the way it's been done then in the past, because it's under the Food and Beverages Act, it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't require nutritional labeling. And is that because it's, it's got limited, if, if any, nutrition in it? Not exactly. It's specifically because it has ethanol in it. It has pure alcohol in it. So the food labeling requirements are set out by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. And interestingly, there's a clause in there that specifically exempts beverages that are over 0.5% alcohol by volume. So it's interesting. People can run this experiment on their own. If you go to the grocery store and you look up if you look down the aisle at non-alcoholic beer, that's under 0.5%, it has a nutrition label on it. So even non-alcoholic beer, things like soda, things like even bottled water have the nutrition facts label on it. Yet alcohol is exempt just because it has the pure alcohol in it. Hmm. And do you know why that decision was made whenever it was made? No, we don't know why. Hmm. It, it's, it's exempt. Um, there's a statement from Health Canada. It was saying that they didn't want Canadians thinking about alcoholic beverages um, as a source of nutrition. But I think that kind of falls flat because there's other examples that I said, um, soda, bottled water, non-alcoholic beer. I think we understand that, that we're not taking those in for their nutritional value. So I think this is something that, sorry, excuse me something that uh, should be on the labels and we can decide for ourselves what we should be what we should be consuming. 
No, and you make a good point because even when if you're having a soda or a club soda or something with no nutritional value, it even says on it, doesn't it, that this is not a, a source of vitamins or this is not uh, this doesn't include anything. And you see, it's got zero calories. It might have some sodium in it, but it really doesn't have anything in it. Mm, that's exactly right. And even when you look at a bottled water label, it has a nutrition facts label, but it just has zeros everywhere, zero calories and zero percent of your daily intake. So it's more of an informational thing. It's it's something that we as consumers and drinkers should have the right to know what we're taking into our bodies. And this is especially true with alcoholic beverages because they have a lot of calories in them. Do you think that there's more of a shift now or are we moving in the direction that people would be open to this or want this? And I'm thinking of just the, in the last couple of years, the explosion of the vodka soda cans that have come out. We went from, I think, a couple of choices to now there are so many of them. But a lot of the selling factor of those is that they're 100 calories. So clearly people are buying them because they're looking at them as a low calorie-ish type drink. So if we, if we want that on our labeling, why not? take the next step and put all of the information on it. I think it's a good point. Those have been very popular. And those, the, the ready-to-drink, um, mixed-drink type of the segment of the market is becoming more popular. Um, many of them have a lot of calories in them. Even 100 calories is not that few, which is always interesting when I saw those packages. I wondered if they were um, kind of shooting themselves in the foot by saying there are 100 calories or if people would think that was not very many. So because we only have to take in, you know, around 2,000 calories for a woman or 2,500 calories for a man, it's not that much. Like even 100 calories is a fairly large proportion of that, especially if we're having one or two or even more than that number of drinks. Yeah, it does. You're right, because it gives the impression that it is a low amount. But when you look at the total calorie count that you're supposed to have in a day, you're right, it is a much bigger percentage. But I guess I guess the idea there, too, is if you're drinking alcoholic beverages and you have a choice between this mixed drink that's that has 100 calories written right on it or going into the beer section and having a high alcohol, say a 7% hoppy beer, uh, we always joke about it in my house that those are treats because drinking one of those beers, even though we don't know exactly what's in it because there is no label, drinking one of those is basically like having a donut. <laughs> well, that's good that you know and understand that. But <laughs> I still think maybe a lot of people don't. <laughs> But yeah, I but, but but I wonder too. So, do you think then if if those beer and I can see why the companies wouldn't want them because then you have it staring you in the face. But do you think people would think twice or, or at least have the information before deciding what they're going to drink? That's our point here: is to get the information out for people to decide for themselves. I think if caloric labeling was on alcohol with the other nutrition facts. It could, it could kind of drive down drinking a small amount. People would be more conscious of, of what they were taking in. It might not make a big difference but in terms of the amount that we drink, but at the end of the day, it, these are our decisions to make, and so it's something that we should have the information in front of us so we can make those decisions. And what about the argument there? I've, I've heard people talking about this saying, look, if you're the one, if you're going home and kicking back and having two or three or four drinks, you probably don't care about the nutritional value because you're going to do that anyway. Whereas if you are more in tune and you want to know about this, there are apps you can do. There are calorie counting apps, and a lot of them are really sophisticated now where you can scan the barcode or you can put it in and it will at least tell you the calorie count. So are there ways, do you think, the, the people that want the information are going to go out and try and get it now anyway? 
I think there there is some truth to that. But at the end of the day, we kind of have to ask ourselves, why is alcohol exempt from this regulation that virtually all other food and beverages in Canada have to follow, including, strangely, even non-alcoholic beer has to put the nutrition facts label on. So it's something that is a bit historical because it's been this way for a long time. But at the same time, um, we don't really want the wool pulled over eyes too much, I wouldn't say. So it might be something that we might want to consider having that nutrition facts label on it like almost all other food and beverages in Canada. Right, because we are also talking about a substance that when abused or when taken in large quantities, I mean, there is a huge price to that. And we see that in our health care and we see that in alcohol-related illness and deaths. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Alcohol is, you know, it does cause a lot of harm in our societies. Um, In fact, a recent study we did last year, it showed that, that alcohol has the highest societal cost um, among all the substances, including tobacco, higher than opioids, higher than cannabis. So one of the reasons for that is because so many of us are alcohol users, and I'm including myself, I'm a drinker too. More than 80% of Canadian adults choose to use alcohol. And so um, that kind of combined with the harms that, that you were mentioning means that across society, alcohol is, is really one of the most harmful substances we have. Uh, do, but uh, do you get the impression or do you think that we will go in down the road of getting nutritional labeling on these or no? That's a good question. I can't say because I'm not a regulator. I think there's been there's been a lot of support for this article. Um, I've done a number of interviews and I've received support from across the country, but I'm not the regulator myself at the end of the day. So um, they'll have to decide. Uh, these type of regulations could be either federal or provincial. Um, so if you're interested in this issue, you could you could talk to those sources. Whether or not it will happen is, is up for debate, but I think it's something that should happen because that nutrition facts label is so standard. If you pull out any, um, pretty much any food or beverage in a package in your house, you'll see that label. And alcohol is really the only thing I can think of that's exempt from that. It's an interesting discussion for sure. We will leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. Right now, we are going to shift gears and go back to looking at what is happening in Hong Kong with the continued protests in Hong Kong. And we saw more this weekend. There have been clashes. We know police have used tear gas in some cases. There was another uh, rally that took place in downtown Vancouver in support of the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong as well. And that was a rally, one of many that were held yesterday. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this with Jane Lee, spokesperson for the Vancouver Hong Kong political activists. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tell me a bit about your involvement and why you are so involved in this and keeping this this topic out there and keeping these protests going. Well, like ourselves as students, so I'm a student myself and I just feel like in Hong Kong right now, like the protests are very um, student-led, even though it's a leaderless movement. A lot of like protesters that went out there are students themselves. And I feel like in Vancouver here, um, like even though I'm a Canadian, and like, but I grew up in Hong Kong, and I feel like I do have the obligation to speak up, um, especially as a student, to echo like the movement in Hong Kong. Um, and also, I want to sp- uh, spread the word to like locals here in Vancouver um, about what's going on because it is a serious issue that is a threat to our go- global democracy. So yeah. 
And a threat to democracy and a threat in what's happening in Hong Kong, do you think that we're getting the full picture on what's happening as far as some of the violence and the clashes and what's actually happening on the ground in Kong, Hong Kong as these protests continue? Um, so, sorry, sorry, are you asking about, like, how, how, like, how may we, like, get the full picture of, like, um, the protests in Hong Kong, like? Right, because, I mean, we got the reports this past week of the arrests. I think it was 28 people arrested um, mm-hmm. and released, yeah. and we, we see the clashes. Are you are you hearing anything different or hearing more information about what's actually happening on the ground? Um, I think, like, that's pretty much, like, what happened. I guess, like, there's more, like... Um, like if you go on like Facebook or like forum like um, online forums in Hong Kong, uh, for example, this forum called LIHKG, like there's more how should I say video evidence and like firsthand accounts that uh, I think like readers might find interesting. Um, so I guess that's like the part where like you can get more information. But I would say like the news descriptions here are pretty um, like you know they cover a lot of things and I think it's pretty uh, descriptive and accurate. Okay. Well, one of the the latest reports we heard from there uh, was in the the latest round of protests. Uh, there were some barricades, I guess, that uh, that were set fire. Uh, there were some roads blocked or or blocking some trains to the airport. Um, protesters, in some cases, throwing what's described as gasoline bombs at some buildings. Uh, I mean, it sounds pretty dangerous. What's happening on the ground there? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Um, however, like there were some. Um, photos showing that, like, actually some protesters that were throwing, like, the um, uh, gas bombs, they were actually uh, undercover uh, police themselves. As you can see, like, they were, like, throwing it, and, like, you can see, like, the gun, like, um, in the person's pocket. And, like, like some people, like, started searching them up, and, like, it's only held by, like, those guns are only held by the police. So, like, right now there's still, like, sort of, like, a speculation of, like, oh, there, there's, like, a lot of undercover police involved which like adds like a layer of complexity to like the whole movement, I believe. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned too, and we've talked about this, the fact that it's, it's a leaderless movement, but there are a lot of students involved in this. Uh, do you see it or do you get any sense on, on if it's going to escalate or what's going to happen as we get further and further into the protests? Um, so with regards to that, I believe like, so uh, if you, you've seen the news, you might've heard that like some, um, prominent like um, pro-democracy activists were arrested a couple days ago, mm-hmm. um, like multiple of them. And even though the leaderless movement, like it's kind of weird how like they targeted these like um, prominent individuals. Like I would see this as like sort sort of like a tactic of oppression to scare like the regular citizens or the students from like um, going onto the streets. And but however, like as we like see from past like sort of. Um, encounters with the like police between the police and the protesters like this only feels sort of like the anger among the, like the um, protesters and I believe that that would cause things to escalate um, hopefully in a peaceful manner like they're like in terms of like say people going onto the streets maybe um, more than two million like would go on the streets for like the next big protest because of like what what's happening like and not only like at, in a political sense where like uh, the five demands are still not being met, but also like if we like sort of it's now extended to like police brutality and like even uh, allegations of sexual violence um, against like the police, um, like for the uh, like like sexual like sexual violence committed by the police, allegations of that, um, and I believe that has fueled sort of like the anger within the protesters. Right, and, and allegations then coming from the the pro democracy protesters. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and there were reports as well uh, within the last few days of uh, police using the water cannons and using spray that was dyed blue to mark protesters so they could arrest them later. I, I mean, do any of these things, will there come a point, do you think, where protesters uh, will will become, I mean, it's a scare tactic, obviously, that, that it, will, it will work and that could actually lead to people not wanting to, to go out there to put themselves in that position? I do believe like uh, a number of people would be like, oh, no, like, I can't. Like, obviously, it's totally valid and understandable. Like, um, like they don't obviously no one wants to get arrested. And um, like some people have like might be like putting their jobs and their like uh, like family on the line, like if they get arrested and so. Right. Um, but however, like um, I believe like even in the face of intimidation, like there will be a, a lot and even like. Some people who have never been on the streets would be, um, how should I say, like angered by that because there's almost, it's almost like there's nothing to lose for them. Like there's nothing else to like, um, for them, like this is sort of like to them, like the last fight. And if they don't like win this battle, like to them, it's like almost it's over, right? Hong Kong is over for them. So like even in the face of like, like maybe the possible charges, the possible like arrests, like they would still go on to the streets. That makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What about the leadership in Hong Kong? Uh, what do you think needs to be done there as far as uh, Carrie Lam stepping up or, or, or doing something to bring an end to this? Well, like in terms of like the leaders in Hong Kong, I feel like they definitely like. Um, so first off, like they've been saying that, oh, we're going to have like open discussion with like these students or like these um like important people in the movement. However, like, um, I like me and like other people are seeing this like as completely ingenuine because, um, despite her saying that, like, she never really responded to any of the demands. And um, it seems like because in the past, in the past movement, which is um, like maybe five years ago, like in the umbrella movement, like they also said something similar, and they so they had like a sort of like roundtable discussion with like some student leaders in the movement. However, like shortly after like these student leaders were arrested so i don't really see how like this could turn into a genuine conversation um in terms of like what they can do like politically i believe like it's simple like just to respond to the five demands um like uh this is what like the citizens want and yeah like that's what i think and you mentioned five years ago. We've we talked about that as well. That things were resolved five years ago, but there doesn't seem to be that same optimism that it can be repeated or that same kind of outcome is possible this time. Do you think that it is? Um, sorry. Do you mean like the umbrella movement? Like yeah. the, the outcome? How should I say? It wasn't really optimistic. I think like at the end, like sort of um, like the the demand, like the original demands, which which was universal suffrage, was still not met. Um, so I wouldn't, for this movement, I still hold hope because it, in terms of like scope and like, like, for example, the number of people going onto the streets and the duration, um, the movement has been going on. I still see that like, it's still really heated, um, as like in terms, how should I say, in comparison to like the umbrella movement, which sort of like died down, like in the like 60th or 70th day, um, so hopefully this sort of um, activism keeps going on um, despite like because it's still like it's so like drawn out and like people might feel tired and, you know, sort of like 
uh, unmotivated to go onto the streets anymore. But I still see that sort of fight, so I'm optimistic about that. Um, however, in terms of like the um, uh, response from the government, I'm not really optimistic about that because um, like there are like reports showing that like Carrie Lam, the leader of Hong Kong, like she's refusing. Like uh, there has been, um, how should I say, like. Uh, reports of her like talking to the um, Chinese government, like that she, like she's, has, um, she's told not to meet any of the demands like from the protesters, and like this got it's just gonna be like a stalemate, I think, a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, and in the meantime, then as this continues, how concerned are you that that there will be more arrests and possible injuries as things escalate? Um. For sure, like, I definitely, like, can foresee, like, there's going to be a lot more arrest, um, like, uh, both, like, in terms of regular, like, you know, regular citizens and also, like, um, like famous pro, uh, pro-democracy pro activists. Um, in terms of injury, like, um, so what I'm seeing right now is police, like, indiscriminately attacking uh, citizens, like, in the train, on the streets, like, um, maybe in the past, like they were maybe uh, targeting like protesters and like uh, sort of having like acts of retaliation. However, like nowadays, like uh, as you can see yesterday night uh, on the train and in, uh, inside of the train in Hong Kong, like police just like ran into the train and like uh, sprayed pepper spray and also like released tear gas like indoors, like in a like closed space. And like the citizens as well as like the protesters were not able to leave the train and like they had nowhere to go. Like and uh, first off, it sort of defeats the purpose of like using a pepper spray of like tear gas, right? Because um, it's supposed to disperse the crowd. However, like there's nowhere for them to go. So um, to me, I see that as like sort of like they're just the police themselves are just like using this as sort of like a you know emotional cushion or some sort, like just to sort of show their anger towards their the protesters. And this has uh, sort of spilled on over to like regular citizens that. Uh, may not be participating in the protest. So I'm really worried about that. Um, and especially, like, there are a lot of Canadians living in Hong Kong, like, whether or not they're participating in the protest, like, they might be uh, in physical danger. So um, so that's why I believe that Canadians also have, like, the obligation to speak up against the violence committed in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, Jane, we'll leave it there. We're out of time for today. But thank yeah. you so much for joining us thank and talking so us today. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.